Hi, this is Troy Senek, host of the Classicist podcast with Victor Davis Hanson from the Hoover Institution. And while you may not know this, the Classicist is actually only one of several podcast series that Hoover produces. While we invite you to sample them all, all you have to do is Google Hoover Institution in the podcast section at iTunes. As a subscriber to The Classicist, we think you'll especially enjoy our series Strategica. Strategica features interviews with members of Hoover's Military History Working Group, which is a group chaired by Professor Hansen. And in these interviews, they connect modern foreign policy events with the history of international affairs. That's why this week we're featuring Victor's newest Strategica interview right here in the Classicist feed. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we encourage you as always to subscribe to both the Classicist and Strategica so that you don't miss any of the insights from our distinguished fellows. And now, without further ado, our episode. Hello and welcome to the Strategica podcast from the Hoover Institution, analyzing the intersection of military history and contemporary national security concerns. You can find us online at hoover.org forward slash Strategica. I'm your host, Troy Senek, and today we'll be examining the topic of the most recent issue of Strategica. Given the specter of more emerging nuclear powers, how and where should the U.S. focus its missile defense capability? And we are joined today by one of the authors in this issue, Victor Davis Hansen, the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and, of course, the chairman of the Military History Working Group that produces Strategica. Victor, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me again. Okay, so missile defense. As you point out in your piece at Strategica, the term itself is significant. The phrase used to be anti-ballistic missile as in the ABM treaty. What does the change in nomenclature tell us about the change in the underlying foreign policy reality? Well, I think it tells us two things. One, we're not dealing just with a bipolar world in the Soviet Union that has these intercontinental ballistic missiles in the many thousands pointed at us. They do, but there's more to it now. And that is that there are things like rockets, katushkas, there's scud missiles, short term, there's drones, there's all sorts of intermediate and short range missiles that can either hit our alliances or our bases overseas rather than just um, – or our ships, and especially in the case of China, if you have a 100,000-ton aircraft carrier and it's patrolling the South China Sea and Chinese batteries have the ability to launch 5,000, oh, three-foot-long missiles, each about a foot above the ocean surface, and they each could blow a hole about 10 feet in diameter, it's very hard how to stop that. So it's not just anti-ballistic missile defense, but mechanisms of jamming or some type of protocol that would protect us more overseas than just the homeland. So quoting you uh, in your strategic piece here, Victor, um, quote, can classical deterrence counter all the diverse threats, these new threats you're talking about from rogue nations, terror groups, former Cold War enemies and a rising China in the long term, even with vast advances in technology? Probably not, close quote. Why not, Victor? What do you mean there? Well, I don't think that – I think we're – Throughout history, there's cycles in response. You know, you have armor as triumphant over offensive power, then offensive power in the form of crossbows or catapults becomes dominant. And right now, we're in the terms of missiles, we don't have the capability to stop thousands of smaller, cheaper, 
uh, and more accurate missiles, that we've sort of leaped into a new cycle. Until we get back to an effective defense against that, we're going to have to uh, reestablish deterrence, offensive deterrence, which would say that if we have we have to get the capability of know who is firing, or better yet, who's likely to fire those weapons at us and uh, apprise them in advance that if they were to do so, it would be um, basically commiserate with their own suicide and that our offensive response would be such that nobody in their right mind would try to attack the asset with a missile. When we're thinking about the threats that are are posed by various regimes with missiles, when we're thinking about proliferation in the broader context, um, what influence, Victor, does the Iran deal have on the landscape here? Not just for Tehran itself, but for the entire region of the Middle East. Well, I think most most worrisome is that we have established a protocol by which I think most observers feel that Iran will get a bomb. In other words, we've given our sanction and the veneer of legality to that process. And what, what that means is that other would-be nuclear powers, whether they're Saudi Arabia or Egypt or Kuwait in the region, to achieve some kind of deterrent parity will say to us, if you are so sure that that protocol will not lead to nuclear proliferation, then you surely would accord to your allies what you did to your nominal enemies. And then we're going to see a, a much more unstable region with not just one or two nuclear powers but five or six. And then the other thing we should keep in mind is we haven't seen a responsible democratic pro-American ally get the bomb since Israel supposedly did in the 1960s or early 70s. And if this protocol goes through with Iran having an intercontinental ballistic missile that's with a nuclear weapon – it's not inconceivable, but other democratic powers will come to us, whether they're Australia or the Philippines or Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, even Germany, and say to us, you know what, the world's just too dangerous. And we're not convinced that you equate your own cities uh, with our cities and that we're not really under your nuclear umbrella. So we, we, we're going to go to nuclear as well for our own protection. How significant was that decision early on in the Obama administration to pull back on the missile defense installations in Poland and the Czech Republic? There, are, there still seems to be some disagreement amongst foreign policy experts as to whether that was significant or not. I think the disagreement is only other, over the mechanics. That is, was it really viable that we could set up this type of shield and convince – everybody that it was directed only at Iran and that it would work in all cases should Iran send missiles. But I don't think anybody denies the symbolic value that we were willing to take a risk to protect our Eastern European allies, to not worry so much about Russian complaints and to direct that Iran in a way that sent a message to them. And then when we did the opposite and pulled that out, it sent the opposite message that we were obsequious to Iranian concerns, that we were worried about what Putin thought, that we didn't value the territorial security of our Eastern European allies. And so it's done a great deal of damage. It really has. Is it fair to say, listening to your diagnosis of several of these situations, that as important as missile defense is, it's secondary and maybe downstream to this bigger issue of deterrence. That seems to be the recurring theme I'm hearing in everything that you're saying. The underlying problem is that America is losing some of that I, deterrence credibility. 
I think so. And missile defense is in the realm of proportionality and, and how do you contain a war and make sure it doesn't expand. These are all valuable things to consider, but we've got to remember what causes wars. Wars are really um, a barometer or a litmus test of who is stronger and who is weaker. And that shouldn't have to be decided by war. Wars break out, whether it's 1939 or 1914, when one side, often the weaker side, believes based on the prior behavior of its intended target that it either won't do anything in response to aggression or it's incapable of mounting a defense that uh, makes the cost not worth uh, the envisioned advantage. So if you lose deterrence, then war breaks out. And then when war is over with, whether it's 60 million dead in World War II or 16 million dead in World War I, then both parties sort of sigh and say, wow, Nazi Germany and Japan and Italy really were far weaker than the Soviet Union, United States or Britain or, wow, the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, Turkey and uh, Germany, the central powers, really were weaker than Russia, Imperial Russia, France, Britain and the United States. But that didn't have to happen because had somebody in 1914 or 1939 informed a Hitler or the Kaiser, these are the assets that will be brought against you and they will be brought against you. Uh, and it would be unwise to take that gamble, then war wouldn't need to occur to show people what the realities were. And so the same thing with missile defense or deterrence. We've got to tell particular aggressive powers, especially places like Iran and North Korea, that we have all of these assets and they can't be sure we won't use them. In fact, we can be as predictable and fickle when pushed as they can, and they never know what to expect. And then that would probably more likely keep them within their own boundaries, both uh, in the air and on the ground, than just these strange negotiations where we talk about proportionality and and protocols and monitoring, and and they really don't work. You mentioned in your piece that in terms of public opinion, there really isn't any great opposition to missile defense in the way that there was during the Cold War, which is interesting because you're talking here about something that was sort of a central legacy of the Reagan administration and we're living in a time when a lot of the principles of the Reagan administration seem to be on trial again. This one though seems to have enshrined itself. Why why is that, do you suppose, Victor? Well, I think it's because of the nature of the threat. Um, missile defense in the 60s and 70s was seen as provocative. Uh, it might incur mutually assured destruction. The Soviet Union was against it. It would uh, ignite an arms race um, that would short social programs. There were even some people who felt that the Soviet Union was just sort of an aberrant form of a socialism that otherwise might be attractive. But today, uh, we're dealing with fascistic states. Nobody has any empathy for ISIS. Hezbollah is not a romantic movement. Uh, Iran, even among the left, doesn't win adherence too often. And the threat is so multifarious and varied that people are really scared, especially after 9-11, which marks a, a, a dividing point. So I think most people of all political uh, ideologies say, you know what, we have so many enemies out there and we don't want another 9-11. And they're pretty right-wing and fascistic or fundamentalist and we've got to protect ourselves accordingly. Even Putin is easier to gird up against than the Soviet Union in some ways because he's not romanticized by anybody in the United States to the same degree the Soviet Union at one time was. 
You mentioned earlier and you discussed in the article as well the fact that the sort of missile threats that we're likely to face in the future are slightly different in kind than the ones that traditional missile defense systems have been constructed to counter. What what are the threats we're looking at? What are the kinds of responses we need to be thinking about? How do they differ from the way we've thought of missile defense in the yeah. past? Well, I think in the past we thought there's going to be an area of tensions over Turkey, Cuba, Berlin – and we'll have weeks of warning and then there are going to be these large traditional nuclear tip missiles that are going to be launched. And then we're going to have a, a, a system, whether it was Star Wars or less romantic, less exotic, that would blow them out of the sky. And today, I think, especially after 9-11 and what we've seen in the Middle East lately, it's much more likely that um, the missiles that are that are targeting us, as I said earlier, will, will be short shorter range, they'll be ad hoc, they'll be in the basement of a building, they'll have a dirty explosive in it that could, you know, create radiation problems for a 10-block area in the middle of a, of a city, and um, or they'll attack a $5 billion aircraft carrier that's 15 miles off the coast, and they're not going to come from the Soviet Union or even its successor, Russia, they're going to come from the Middle East, they're going to come from North Korea, they're going to come from who knows, Cuba, Venezuela, anybody. And so the world is far more unpredictable and there's far more bad actors that are not controlled by an adversary like the Soviet Union kept its communist uh, subject states and sort of in harness. And so I don't think there's no rules in the arena anymore, so to speak. And that that involves also the type of response that we're going to have to worry about. We're going to have to be really quite... Uh, quite diverse. We're going to have to traditional response against intercontinental ballistic missiles, but we're going to have to have Patriot batteries in various places. And then we're going to have to create an image that there's a zero tolerance for a missile fired at a U.S. asset. All right. Our guest has been Victor Davis Hanson. You can read his essay and those by other members of Hoover's Military History Working Group by visiting us online at hoover.org forward slash strategica. That's S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-K-A. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Strategica, and I'm Victor Davis Hansen. <laughs>